Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, comrades and friends. We're back with another episode of History Impossible, and it's another conversation, and... At this point, I don't even know how many times we've collaborated, but it's another collaboration with my friend and fellow podcaster, host of the Dangerous History Podcast, C.J. Kilmer. We mostly spend the episode talking about his recent, man, I think it was like five and a half hour epic, talking about Woodrow Wilson and his relationship to racism, which was quite cozy, to say the least. It was a very good episode that I highly recommend you all listen to, especially before you listen to this one if you haven't already, but it's not completely necessary. You can still follow along largely with what we're talking about. We also spend the last third or so of the episode talking about the philosophy of progressivism, which, while it does have a certain partisan context, the word progressivism that is, We're not exactly just doing the whole dunking on the left thing that some might think. It's actually a more philosophical deep dive into what undergirds the mindset that we might call progressivism. Now, before we get into that, I need to first thank John Andre Sather for continuing to support History Impossible the way he has been for so long. I cannot stress enough how helpful his financial support and also moral support that he's given me. So if you want to support History Impossible, if you like what I'm doing here, you can do what John Andre's doing and support the show over on patreon.com slash historyimpossible. There are multiple levels of support. Whatever works for you works for me. Any kind of support is helpful. You can also become a paid subscriber over on the History Impossible Substack and get access to exclusive content on both platforms, Patreon or Substack, But probably the biggest sell for supporting History Impossible is you get to listen to these episodes without ad breaks, which some people don't mind. I certainly don't mind if you listen to the ad-full versions because that gives me a little bit of extra revenue and helps me keep the lights on here. But with that said, some people don't really like to hear the ads and would rather just support me directly. So the best way to do that is to become a patron or Substack paid subscriber. But another way, if you can't spare a couple bucks a month, which is totally understandable, If you but you want to support the show, is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. That really does help with the show's growth. If you want to find me elsewhere apart from this show, you can find me over on Twitter at Vaughn. You can find me on Instagram, the History Impossible Instagram. It's just History Impossible. You'll be able to catch some of the images of the subjects that I cover on this show, such as the recent pandemic episode I did, the sequel of sorts, where I talked about the Black Death in this case. 
If you want to hear me on some other shows, I recently appeared on the Eastern Border podcast again, along with host of the Political Orphanage podcast, Andrew Heaton, who was actually kind enough to have me on his show uh, recently. Not sure when that one's coming out, but keep an eye out for it. I'll, I'll definitely be announcing it on my social media uh, profiles. If you also want to check out a little bit of an older interview, there was one I did with Jack Johansson of the Secret Police podcast, another really excellent new podcast. And uh, we talked mostly about pandemics and so forth because we were we were a little cagey about why we were talking about such things specifically because my pandemic episode had not come out yet and I was trying to surprise everybody. But we talk about that sort of thing. So we have that. And also we have a couple things coming out actually on the History Impossible feed besides this one. We have an infinitesimal impossibility coming up where Molly and I discuss a... Uh, I don't know how much I want to reveal. You can probably get the idea if you go over to my Instagram that what it's going to be about, but it's uh, it might be the cutest History Impossible that we've ever done. But it is definitely an impossibility, one people might have a hard time believing, but is without a doubt a true story. And I would be remiss not to bring this up, but yes... The Muslim Nazis are coming, <laughs> which is something I hope does not get clipped out of context. But yes, that series is returning and returning hopefully very soon. I don't want to overlap it too much with these episodes I'm putting out, but it will be coming soon. So with all of that said, let's jump into this conversation I had with the Dangerous History Podcast's CJ Kilmer. Permit me to tell you what you would have seen and heard. It will not be pleasant listening. If you're at lunch, or if you have no appetite, now is a good time to switch off the radio. An ancestor of mine maintained that if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. The European Russian found the outrot of the Judenos in Europa. I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is inside. I don't see any American dream, I see an American nightmare. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I have tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. This is History Impossible. And then uh, I'm just thinking I can I can bring this up later. But anyway, uh, let's see how am I going to introduce this. I, I I guess I'll just I'll just go. Um, Okay. I am here with CJ Kilmer for, I don't even know how many times we've collaborated at this point, but you're definitely, I think you and I have definitely collaborated more than anybody else <laughs> in, in our space. Cause I think this might be like our 10th or something like that collaboration. And I wanted to have you on my show because you recently, semi-recently at this point, put out an incredible episode as part of your also incredible Woodrow Wilson series that I honestly hope never ends, but I get the feeling it's probably entering its home stretch in the near future. Uh, but you put out, I want to say, the longest episode you've done so far on the man, and it was Woodrow Wilson with regards to race, which 
I think is actually a good subject, especially for people who might be more skeptical to the view you and I take about Woodrow Wilson and progressivism in general, because I think you've pointed this out that the way people uh, talk about Woodrow Wilson now, even the people who want to defend him, they always have that jaundiced eye about how he regarded race. You know, the excuses they make for him aside, because we can probably imagine those, they do are they they are willing to admit that he probably wasn't the best with regards to this question. So I think it's a good entry point for a lot of people to become skeptics of Woodrow Wilson to be the most charitable you can be of the man. Um, but I thought your episode was so good and so thorough, and it highlighted an unsung hero of American history, especially Black American history, which is Monroe Trotter, which we can get to him later. I, I just, I really wanted to talk to you about this stuff and uh, about this particular subject. But uh, with that said, I, I was just thinking we would start by you just giving the bullet points or the summary or the elevator pitch for why Wilson was essentially not the hero people might think he is with regards to uh, the relations between white and black Americans. Yeah. Yeah. So my take on Wilson um, differs in many ways from the standard establishment take on Wilson, the standard establishment take on Wilson and, you know, progressivism, particularly of the, the corporatist variety has been kind of the default political ideology of what I would call the American establishment uh, since at least the 1910s, uh, if not maybe even earlier. And so Wilson is obviously one of the leading lights of that movement, first as an academic and then as a politician. And because of that, and, and that type of progressivism has been the dominant default ideology of the American political system for over a hundred years at this point. And it's been even more overwhelmingly the dominant default ideology of academia for since at least the 1890s. Like when Wilson was a professor, that was already largely a done deal that progressivism took over academia. In many ways, progressivism created American academia as we know it. Um, and so because of that, modern day historians overwhelmingly will not be too tough on Woodrow Wilson. And so the the standard academic establishment line on Wilson is he was mostly great. He did all these wonderful things. He he gave us the Federal Reserve, thank God for that, and the income tax, and thank God for that, and all these other wonderful progressive reforms that were just desperately needed. Um and, you know, thankfully, he got America into World War One because we all know that was on the right side of history to do that. And they'll at most with World War One, a few of them will be good enough to sort of say, like, yeah, he was kind of bad on civil liberties during the war and did kind of go too far. You know, so so somebody like um, I mean, I think we should we should give credit where it's due where people are willing to say, yeah, maybe the Espionage Act wasn't a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, a good example of this is. um uh, David Kennedy, who mm-hmm. is, I think, a Stanford historian, and, you know, he's what I would consider like a very good and competent academic historian and, you know, doesn't have the same radical ideologies I do, but he's at least honest and fair, I think. And he's got a book on Woodrow Wilson on, on sort of like the domestic uh, side of World War One mobilization called Over Here. And um, 
you know, he does expose a lot of the the dark side of of the civil liberties violations and whatever like that. Um, so, you know, the, some some honest academic historians, which are not many, uh, will will acknowledge that aspect. Um, and then they'll they'll often if they're very establishment, they'll often be like, oh, and he had this great idea for the League of Nations. It's just tragic that, um, you know, he wasn't able to get the U.S. Senate to ratify the Treaty of Versailles and have the U.S. join the League of Nations, because if only he had done that, you know, we would have got started on the U.N. even earlier than we did. And this would have, you know, led to World War II probably not happening if only the U.S. had been part of the League of Nations. Um, but, yeah, the, the one big thing that even the establishment has to admit about Wilson is that he was a racist. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's just too big to sweep under the rug anymore. You know, um, in, in Oh, but the- he was a product of his time, CJ. Like he was just a product of his time. We can't obviously admit that about Thomas Jefferson, but yeah. when it comes to Wilson, that's different. That's a, yeah. he was a product of his time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. These are just basically, you know, the worst monsters of history because they own. Absolutely. Slaves. Yes. Um, but yeah. And, and, you know, another thing, thing that a lot of the establishment historians even who who kind of dig in a lot to wilson and race and who admit it was like a a dark side of him um even then they'll often in my opinion get his racism wrong because and there's a few exceptions that i mentioned in in the episode of historians who i agree with their take on wilson and race but um it seems like a lot of establishment academic historians they they take a very um, almost kind of superficial and dismissive view of Wilson's racism where they just will sort of say like, well, you know, he was born in the South uh, and grew up in the South and, you know, during and in the aftermath of the Civil War. And so therefore he just sort of had like this default, you know, Southern bigotry uh, racism. Whereas my view is, no, 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 no. I mean, that, that may have been like kind of the, the starting point of some of his views on race, but that his, his racism was different from like the racism of an average like working class Southern Klansman or something. Mm-hmm. His, his racism, at least by the time he was, you know, an adult and in, into his career, his racism was Ivy League educated, genteel anglo-saxonism um a lot of his racial attitudes were much more similar to the racial attitudes of somebody uh like henry cabot lodge um or um uh, herbert baxter adams who was his mentor in graduate school uh and these were new england yankee um kind of anglo-saxonist type you know, again, Ivy League, Ivy League educated. And they had this, this very, you know, at the time, like 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, a lot of these ideas about race and, and Anglo-Saxonism that strike us as like ridiculously, n- not just uh, morally problematic today, but also just in, in terms of evaluating these theories as history and as science, they're just wrong. Right. Um, but, but at the time that was considered the respectable, you know, expert opinion that was considered <laughs> the science, you know, trust the science. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The scientific consensus is that races are, you know, not all equal to each other. 
And don't you know that's that's literally what's in the Ivy League textbooks? Well, right. Um, if you just want to point to, I mean, I, I don't blame Darwin for that. I blame his cousin, uh, the the guy who invented eugenics, whose name is escaping me off the top of my head. Um, but he. Oh, oh, are you talking about Galton? Galton, yes, Francis Galton, yes, he was the one who invented. He invented the term eugenics, and he's Darwin's cousin. And Darwin did endorse his views. And you have this quote-unquote scientific idea that the human race is segmented. There isn't human race, there's human races, was the idea from folks like Galton. And they just reached their, well, we'll get to this later, I'm hoping, but uh, they, they basically just, could, that was not going to just suddenly be forgotten. Like people thought it was the cutting edge, as you're saying. Yeah. It was, it was the, the science, the capital T, capital S. Yeah, and, and, and sometimes people will will sort of say like, well, um, you know, the eugenicists and people like that and the Anglo-Saxonists, they sort of like hijacked or bastardized uh, Darwin's ideas. Oh, what what's the book? I think it's Descent of Man. Yes, Descent of Man, yeah. Yeah, which I have a copy of somewhere, and I haven't read the whole thing, but I've, I've read bits and pieces of it here and there. And um, unless my memory's off, which is quite possible but i'm pretty sure it's in descent of man where he's got like explicitly eugenicsy sounding racial thoughts about different ethnicities of human beings i'm pretty sure it's Mm. in descent of man where um in in particular he kind of goes on a tear against the irish um (laughs) among other things and um I mean, that's one of those moments where I'm like, well, he is, he is British. So, <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. was a very common thing amongst both uh, British and American Anglo-Saxonists, um, where very often, you know, overall their ideology would be like, well, uh, because they didn't just think in terms of like, like today, people who think in racialized terms often have relatively few, but large categories of people. It's like, white people, black people, Asian people. But in the Anglo-Saxonist ideology of a hundred plus years ago, they they didn't really think of like white people as one thing. Um, they made lots of distinctions between different ethnicities of white people. And- let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And typically, the more north and west you went in Europe, the better the white people were. So, you know, your your highest people are your Anglo-Saxons, your Teutons, and maybe your Scandinavians. Um, and then, you know, lower white people would be like your Italians and Greeks and whatever, and maybe your Slavs. But but they would, the, the one, the most Northwestern Europeans you could think of, <laughs> and also, by the way, physically like the palest, right? Very often the Irish. Um, 
they often got put in their own little category of like, these aren't really white people. Um, They're mongrels, as they would probably call them or whatever. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and Wilson, as you've pointed out, actually, I think you've been talking about Wilson's uh, Anglo Saxonist tendencies. I want to say since the first episode of your series, I don't want to, you know, I, am I right in remembering that? You've been talking about it for a while. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't remember where in the series I first brought it up, but it's been something that's been on my radar because I, I first came, became aware of this whole Anglo-Saxonist ideology as, you know, a dominant way of looking at the world um, amongst both the British and American elites of the turn of the last century. Um, I've been aware of that as a distinct ideology since graduate school mm-hmm. when I was studying the British empire. And, um, and I, and I read a book that I, I still have a copy of today. It's actually kind of hard to find now um, that I, I think I referenced a bit in, in the episode about Wilson and race explicitly. And the author, um, I think his name is Stuart Anderson and the title is race and rapprochement. And it's all about like, first off explaining this ideology of Anglo-Saxonism as sort of intellectual history. Right. And so, you know, quoting guys like, um, you know, Madison Grant and, and Francis Galton oh, and characters. Yeah. And then, you know, looking at the way like the American elites who were mostly Northeasterners uh, in terms of region and identity, you know, um, the, the elites of the time in academia and, and the political world and kind of in terms of cultural and social elite influence, um, it was more than anything, it was people of New England Yankee ancestry mm-hmm. you know people who who can trace their ancestors back to like the mayflower or something the the, the cabots the lodges the adamses um several members of the adams family um and you know it, it wasn't like a lot of southern elites bought into this as well but like it was really coming from the new england yankee lineage people ultimately and their Anglophilia, and then the fact that, you know, this was a dominant ideology being used to justify the British Empire at the time, and then a lot of American, you know, WASP, New England elites, they they were very um, Anglophilic, they wanted to, like, be the equivalent of the British aristocracy, but in America, um, a lot of these blue-blooded New England families, and so this was what was being taught at Ivy league schools. It's also what was being taught at um, Johns Hopkins university, which is where Wilson went to graduate school. And, you know, it's a very distinct racial ideology. Um, It's, it's kind of its own, its own thing. It's sort of the uh, Anglo American version of what would eventually become, uh, for lack of a better term, Volkism in in Germany, Uh, the, 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 the Nazi ideology, which was just the extreme manifestation of this kind of thinking, but with a German, through a German lens. But again, that's something I want to jump back to later, but it just, it's just striking as you're explaining this. I'm just thinking like, this really was sort of the in vogue way of elite thinking at the time when it came to uh, like racial identity issues at the time. And on the one hand, I want to, you know, not judge people by today's standards, like who lived a hundred years ago. But on the other hand, I think it's impossible not to find it very ironic that it's that that things so fundamentally 
uh, crude, I would say, basically creating a hierarchy of groups were considered the cutting edge. Like it's, and it's, it's just, it's just so ironic to me because of how just like how, how we've kind of come so far in terms of our understanding of human identity being, well, some of us I'll say, uh, as being so individualistic, that's really what the, what, like, yeah, you can talk about group identity, but just how we've come to this place where we, we, we do hopefully realize that these group identities don't actually have very many qualitative differences if any, I would say, but like these people were really into the idea of highlighting these differences and saying, no, 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 no. These are distinct and important differences. Yeah. And today with our knowledge of things like DNA, you know, and, and, and all the various 23 and me sort of uh, services out there and all the things we now know, um, you know, th- their whole idea was in part that ethnicities are like these these sealed off little self-contained things, you know, that there is such a, such a thing as like uh, the German race, which is distinct Mm -hmm. from the French race or the, you know, whatever the, the, the Bohemian or Czech or whatever they would have called it back then, you know, race Um, rather than as we now know, like people are always throughout history, they're moving around, they're intermingling, they're interbreeding. So like there is no pure, ethnic group hardly anywhere other than maybe some super isolated hunter gatherer tribe in the most remote part of the world. Um, that, that, this whole idea of, of racial purity is, is just, you know, a lot of nonsense, which is not to say that there's, you know, not like that historically people who, you know, come from Ireland tend to look differently than people who come from West Africa and to pretend that like there, there's nothing, There's no, you know, that race actually is entirely a social construct, but that it's also, it's not these rigid, self-contained, isolated categories where you can just sort of say like, oh, Anglo-Saxons over here, Celts over there. I'm like, really? There's no, you know, (laughs) um, there's no crossing of the streams as far as that goes. (laughs) Well, right. And they, and and that's the other thing too, is that like they, they not only wanted these isolated they basically saw it as like isolated circles essentially of like of ethnic groups and whatnot. But these isolated circles were according to these people like Woodrow Wilson isolated and in a pyramid like hierarchy. That's the big takeaway. That's what makes it into what we would call today a racist ideology. Correct? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, The idea was that in, I think Wilson's views evolved somewhat over the course of his career on this. Like, I, I think in the early stages of his academic career, he was just sort of like a, a carbon copy um, of the previous generation's Anglo-Saxonism. Because again, you know, guys like Herbert Baxter Adams, um, you know, sort of founding fathers of American Anglo-Saxonist ideology were were the mentors of people like Woodrow Wilson. Um, I think it, I, I think it got a little bit more, hazy maybe is the best way to put it over in Wilson's mind over the course of his career. Like some, some of the categories I think sort of became a little bit less distinct and, you know, maybe his, his beliefs at least about certain groups softened a bit. Um, but for sure he, he, he had a teleological view of history. He, he believed that history, all societies ultimately in the grand sweep of history were evolving towards a particular end point. And so in his view, 
this endpoint was what he called modern democracy. And his view was that ultimately all human societies, all human quote unquote races are evolving towards the same goal, the same historical endpoint. But, and, and he doesn't, he doesn't really ever explicitly nail it down to exactly what, how to account for this, but that different races are at different points currently on the journey toward modern democracy. And so, you know, he would look at a group of people that he considered lower on the racial scale, like black people, you know, people of African descent, and he would say they're capable of eventually you know, being on the same level as Anglo-Saxons. How magnanimous but, of him. <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, it's it's better, I guess, than the more, you know, extreme, unrepentant racists like, um, you know, Thomas Dixon, who wrote The Klansman that became Birth of a Nation. Like, his, Dixon's view was like, black people are just eternally bad, just like eternally mm-hmm. inferior, broken, no amount of education, no amount of, you know, anything is ultimately going to make them even remotely capable of, of being the equal of white people and of, you know, living in a, in a, in a predominantly white democratic society successfully. Um, so I, I guess Wilson's a, a little bit more, you know, generous in that he's like, well, eventually maybe in a, in a few centuries, you guys will be our equals. Um, but yeah, and he, and he never explicitly that I can recall says exactly why this is like exactly why is it that some races are so much further along this, um, path towards the end of history than others. Um, it seems like just by implication that he thinks that it's just, um, kind of the accidents of history and geography and these sorts of things. He definitely seems to have thought, which was a very, um, almost universal belief amongst intellectuals of his time period that um, like physical environment plays a role. You know, this, this idea that people who grow up, um, who, who evolve in, you know, as, as individuals and as society in, in a place that's say, um, you know, maybe a more tropical climate that they're going to tend to be like lazier. Um, and that like the, the whole idea that, you know, to answer the question of like, why, if you're looking at the world in 1880, well, it seems like Northern Europeans are ahead in just about everything of the rest of the world, uh, at least at that moment in time, right? And so how do you explain this? At least part of the answer to somebody like Wilson would be, well, they evolved individually and as societies in places with harsh winters and so therefore they had to develop more of a work ethic and a lower time preference so that, you know, because if you're not during the summer, if you're not working extra hard and storing some of your extra crops to get you through the harsh Teutonic winter, you're not going to make it. Whereas, you know, people who live in like subtropical, lush, you know, fertile, warm places with no harsh winter, like they can just fuck around. And so, you know, they don't have to develop the same degree of self-discipline and whatever. Right. I find it hard to believe, though, that he would offer that same level of charity to, say, indigenous people of northern Canada or the indigenous Siberians out there or the Japanese who live in – though he was relatively positive on the Japanese, right? Yeah, he was somewhat pos- uh, positive on the Japanese, um, 
pretty negative on the Chinese for the most part, although he was somewhat positive when the Chinese revolution, the kind of initial revolution um, that eventually turned into the civil war and the communists taking over, but sort of the initial one, you know, where the last emperor, um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Abdicated or was overthrown. I forget mm-hmm. which. Um, yeah. He, he saw that as like, oh, look, the, the Chinese people after being um, sort of in like a racial cul-de-sac for centuries, um, they're finally progressing again. And as evidence, look, they're overthrowing this ancient uh, uh, monarchy there. They seem to be trying to create some kind of a modern republic. And so, therefore, this is this is a historically progressive development. But you know, it, overall, he had he had negative thoughts about uh, the Chinese people, as far as I can tell. And definitely, he also seems to have thought not not just that you know there's there's hierarchies of different racial categories, but also that there's certain racial categories that just can never uh, learn to live together in reasonable you know harmony and just kind of getting along um which you know like i'm i'm a realist on this stuff i I don't like to indulge in in um imaginary wishful thinking or anything so like i'm i'm willing to accept that there are certain cultures that would have a particularly hard time uh mixing like it you know if you're uh, uh, devoutly fundamentalist, old school, hardcore Muslim from some third world country, and we suddenly drop you into Sweden. Like, I can accept the uh, the argument that like this is going to be a difficult, not that it's necessarily impossible, but like that this is going to be a difficult mm-hmm. mixture. The culture clash is real. Well, we have evidence of that. I mean, you bring that up, and that was a very real issue. Uh, it was much more of a pronounced issue in terms of how. Um, I mean, if you want to get really down into the minutia, that was the problem when uh, they, when Germany specifically brought in a lot of Muslims from uh, more uh, more devout, uh, I shouldn't say devout Muslims, uh, but just Muslims from Muslim majority countries that have what we would consider in the West pretty regressive views on women. And then you see that culminate in the 2015, 2016 New Year's Eve mass groping and even sexual assault. Uh, uh, instances that happened that year. And it was a horrifying story and nobody really wanted to talk. I mean, people did talk about it, but unfortunately by, you know, I don't want to get too far off uh, on a tangent here, but like the, the sort of mainstream progressive intelligentsia was unwilling to entertain the idea that, Hey, maybe there is a big culture clash going on here and they didn't want to talk about it. So they ceded ground to actual xenophobic racists saying that, Oh no, these people are just backward and they'll never assimilate when the reality was, no, they were never given a chance to assimilate because nobody actually thought about it. Nobody actually made the effort to try to make it such a, such a, such a circumstance for them where they could understand these new norms and rules that they might not, you know, fully appreciate because they've been living in a place where those rules and norms don't exist. So yeah. And I I think what you're saying is absolutely right though, because of things like that. Yeah. And and there's a difference between saying that, you know, let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Two uh, groups from wildly different, you know, cultures and histories mm-hmm. and civilizations may not always get along smoothly, which is something that, like, anybody who's who's being at all honest would be like, yeah, uh, clearly there, there are cases where cultures clash. Um, you know, I mean, if you're just pretending uh, that that's not the case because of your, you know, civil religion or whatever, that that's that's one thing. But, um, you know, with a lot of the Wilson era racial ideologists, again, they, they don't seem to ever like fully make it all explicit but there's you're kind of left wondering how much of it did they believe is like they wouldn't have used this terminology yet but like in your dna um you know how how much of like why i don't know um a typical white american or a chinese person you know why they're so different and seem to have such incompatible cultures from the standpoint of like 1900 um how much of it is just that they're from different parts of the world that had um very little contact until quite recently with each other and had very different historical experiences and therefore very different cultures versus how much of it is like in your in your genes you know that like chinese people or whoever are just like genetically predisposed to you know, not be suited for freedom and democracy or whatever. And it may take many generations or even centuries for them to uh, evolve to where they're capable of something like British or American style, quote unquote, right. democracy. Well, and no people are monolithic. I, I, I'm saying something very obvious, but yeah, no people are monolithic. And I think back then, especially, uh, but you know, I you know, there's a through line. Uh, but progressives of Will of Wilson's uh, cut from the Wilson cloth will say they seem to be very fond of thinking of groups of people as monolithic, where instead of thinking of them as groups of individuals who all have their own priorities and self interest, which is you know, sort of fundamentally why I find progressivism broadly speaking as an ideology so distasteful in a lot of ways is that it doesn't account for how we're all wildly you i mean we're all snowflakes i'm just gonna say it. we're all snowflakes we're all unique <laughs> and they just don't yeah. want they can't they, they like wilson could not abide by that way of thinking i would imagine yeah and th- this is one of those things that i think um actually jordan peterson gets quite right um, you know, despite all my criticisms of him, especially in recent years, but you know, wh- one of the points that I've heard him make that I, I think is very, um, very correct is he says, "Look, when in like the modern wokest theology, I would call it, um, the they're arbitrarily only picking a few categories on which your entire identity as a human being is supposed to be based." And they're ignoring a million other potential because like we all have many different identities in a way. It's like, yeah, we have our ethnic identity, but then we have our, you know, identity um, in, in a thousand other ways. You know, the hobbies we're into, 
um, our, our, our mental illness, I mean, our, yeah. Fill, yeah, fill in the blank, anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, well, why is it just race, sex, and, you know, broadly defined sexual identity and preference? Why are those the only things that define you as a human being? Why isn't it that, you know, uh, like, like we, it used to be possible that you could bridge those sorts of divides by other common things like, Hey, we're all fans of football, you know, and regardless of our different races and, you know, sexual preferences or whatever, like, Hey, we can all just be football fans and bond over that. Or, you know, we can all be into comic books and bond over that, or we can all be, you know, whatever it is. Um, we can all be musicians, you know, we can all, uh, be, be, I don't know, jazz musicians and like, who really cares that like, you know, you're gay and I'm not, or you're black and I'm white. Like we can, you know, but yeah, the, the progressive, um, at least the dominant strain of progressivism always wants to uh, reduce it down to very specific things that are aspects of your identity, but they want to make it reductionist where like, that's it. That is literally all that matters. I can completely uh, uh, understand you and categorize you as an individual. If I just know your race, your sex and your, you know, sexual identity and preference and whatever like that, that that's all I need to know about you. That's all you are. It's very dehumanizing in a way. It's, it's extremely dehumanizing. And hence why I think it's kind of beautiful when I do see uh, a sort of I mean, like, it, it, again, within the uh, different uh, priorities within groups, but like why, what, like why you see mass rejections of things like labels like Latinx or Latinx, however you say it, uh, like how that is pretty much 98%, 97% hated by most Spanish speaking people because it just does, it's not it's not the language. It's a form of colonialism in its own way. And uh, that, that actually funny enough really reminded me of old school progressivism. It just, it, that was one of those little instances where I was just thinking nothing has really changed with people of that mindset. It really is kind of the same mentality of like, we need to create groups that fit our mold rather than look at the groups as they, you know, exist, you know, on their own. They don't, they don't, like it's almost like they see it as a form of guidance. Oh, we're providing guidance. We're providing uh, a way to live life in a way that conforms to not just our way of looking at the world, but the correct way of looking at the world. And I would think that that is sort of in a way the, uh, the, the underlying psychology of progressivism in a way um, I, I wanted to ask you about something that Wilson was very fond of saying regarding race, specifically the relationship between white and black Americans at the time, which does have historical context, of course. But uh, he he was very fond of talking about we need to reduce friction, no mm-hmm. friction. And I th- there's so much there, but I, I just I wanted to let you uh, explain that a little bit, like and, and maybe give some examples of what he meant by that. Yeah, that most frequently came up, um, and it was one of his favorite sort of phrases and concepts to drop into racial conversations. Uh, it most frequently would come up in regard to issues of segregation, and that would be sort of his excuse for why he was um, perhaps instituting segregation somewhere 
Well, he had reinstituted it, correct? Like in Washington, D.C., there hadn't been much segregation, at least or at least within the government or something. They had like desegregated it and then he brought it back, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he, um, I wouldn't say that there was, there was no segregation within, um, D.C. and within the government, but it was nothing like rigid Jim Crow, you know, de jure explicit like blacks have to use this bathroom kind of thing mm-hmm. um i'm i am i'm sure that there were uh informal you know discriminations and things happening where like you know if you were a black employee of a government department you know you probably had slightly lower odds of getting the next promotion than a white competitor in, in the same you know job but, oops, but from the Civil War until Woodrow Wilson, the the federal government civil service, the, the bureaucratic type jobs and offices and departments, they were not really segregated. Again, no question that there were like informal discriminations and things happening, but it was still one of the better career avenues uh, if you were a black person and and, um, you know, D.C. has had a huge African-American population, at least since the Civil War. And part of it was because if you were a black person, say, living in a place like Virginia uh, or Maryland, D.C., relatively speaking, would be like a mecca to you of, oh, if I can move there, like a lot of the worst of the, the hardcore Jim Crow type stuff doesn't apply you know, because the federal government essentially governs the city of D.C. And ever since the Civil War, they, um, you know, had not put in place any any strict Jim Crow style segregation, um, even in the city itself, but then also within the government, you know, offices and things. And so as a result, like it was one of the better career paths open to you if you were a black person, especially if you were a black person that actually, you know, had a decent amount of education was, you know, pretty literate and and that sort of thing um, that, that a job for the federal government might've been one of your best ways to be kind of middle-class. And so as a result, a lot of black people, you know, over the decades from the civil war to Woodrow Wilson um, had moved to DC if they were able to and and gotten jobs working for the federal government. And in in particular um, the, the treasury department, um, had a lot of black employees in some of its its uh, sub departments, and uh, the Navy Department, like the, you know, the actual like bureaucracy. The Navy Department was its own separate thing at the time. It wasn't yet, you know, lumped into the big Defense Department with the Army and everything else. Uh, and then also the Postal Service had a fair amount of black employees, and um, you know, at, at least some of them were fairly high up within the bureaucracy. There were even as I talked about in that episode, there were even certain posts that kind of over the decades after the Civil War came to be thought of as like informally reserved for black, you know, um, applicants or, you know, black people to fill those jobs, like including some fairly high up uh, posts within, you know, just certain jobs within the Postal Service or within the Treasury Department or whatever. Um, And, you know, that meant a lot lot to to politically uh, astute black people of the time period, because at least it was something, you know, at least it was something like, oh, you know, the, the, whatever, the number three guy in the post office is typically a black guy. Um, you know, when you don't really have anything else going like that, that at least means something. And so, um, 
Wilson came in and before I, I did the, the deep research for this episode that we're talking about, um, I had it in my head that Wilson actually by executive order instituted Jim Crow segregation throughout the federal government civil service. I don't know where I got that, that notion. I, maybe I miss it. Maybe either I read it somewhere where it was erroneously said, or somehow I misinterpreted something that I read and it just, you know, got stuck in my head. Cause I, I can remember even saying to some of the classes I taught over the years, um, that Wilson did it by executive order. Um, but that's not actually true. Instead, what he did was he gave his cabinet chiefs discretion on the issue. And it just so happened that a lot of his cabinet appointees were vehement racists. Uh, several of them were definitely even more racist than Wilson himself was. There's no way he didn't know that, right? Like he he absolutely knew who they were and what, what they believed in regards to this question, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one thing I'm not sure of is, and, and it was a tragedy that the departments of the government that had the most black employees actually got the most racist guys running those departments under Wilson. And I, I, I haven't seen any evidence that it was deliberate, that he was like, oh, these are the three departments with the most black employees. Let me put my three most racist guys in charge. Like, <laughs> as far as I know, it was just a a, a tragic coincidence that that it worked mm. out that way. But it worked usually out usually is way. like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. So yeah. his um his postmaster general was uh, Albert Burleson of Texas. His uh, navy secretary was Josephus Daniels of North Carolina. And his treasury secretary, who eventually became his own son-in-law when, when he uh, married Wilson's daughter, who was like 20-some-odd years younger than him, it's really kind of weird, uh, was William Gibbs McAdoo, who um, was originally from Georgia. And, you know, the, these were all um, – McAdoo was probably the least extreme racist, but he was still pretty racist. And for sure, um, you could make a strong case that Josephus Daniels at the Navy Department and Burleson at the Postal Service were – arguably the two most racist guys in Wilson's whole cabinet. And those happened to be the treasury department, the Navy department and the postal service were the three departments with the largest number of black employees. And so Wilson basically allowed those guys to within those departments institute very rigid Jim Crow style segregation of like separate facilities and, you know, doing everything you can to minimize things like black and white employees working side by side physically in the same offices and using the same facilities and using the same lunchrooms and things like that. And so, you know, the way it often worked out was that black employees of those departments were more likely to be laid off or to stop getting promotions and be sort of like incentivized to look somewhere else for a job. Um, you know, just in general, their their conditions were made difficult, right? I mean, imagine, you know, for years you've been working uh, for the Treasury Department in D.C., and you've been using the same office and the same bathroom and whatever as everybody else, and then suddenly they're like, all right, from now on, when you have to go to the bathroom, you've got to walk a half a mile, uh, you know, down down the block to a black bathroom, and um, you can no longer eat lunch in the convenient lunchroom right here with everybody else. You've got to go to a special designated area, um, you know, and, and, and also like you start to notice that, oh, I'm not getting promoted as often as I used to under previous regimes. So, you know, a, a lot of black people um, 
resigned just because, you know, in protest against these policies or just because it, you know, uh, destroyed the morale. And, um, and he also significantly increased the degree of racism and segregation in the U.S. military under his watch. So um, prior to him coming in as president, the Navy was relatively integrated. Now, you know, again, like there, absolutely there was still um, discrimination against black sailors and black, um, you know, uh, naval bureaucrats of the Navy Department where they didn't get promoted as often or as highly, like no question. Uh, but, you know, just because of the the reality, especially of when you're deployed on ships, right? Like you don't have too many options, especially if it's on a smaller warship of like making sure that all of your black crew members stay in their little, you know, confined area and don't, you know, use the same facilities. Like you, you might not have a choice. And so just for sort of pragmatic reasons, the Navy was relatively unsegregated again, from the civil war to Woodrow Wilson for like 50 years. Um, and then Josephus Daniels, who was uh, Wilson's Navy secretary, he was a hardcore racist. He was also, by the way, a super a hardcore progressive. And those two things are not mutually exclusive, of course. I'd say they're, they're tend, they tend to be, uh, they tend to be um, uh, related, we could say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, especially back then, like old school racists, yeah. um, many, of, many right. of them were progressives and vice versa. And um, so, you know, Josephus Daniels institutes hardcore segregation uh, in the U.S. Navy, both for like the actual military personnel as well as for the uh, civilian, you know, bureaucrats of the department. And eventually it got to the point where for quite a long time, the U.S. Navy just simply wasn't recruiting any new uh, black, you know, members. Um, really for, for a good chunk of time between like World War I and World War II, um, there, there were very few black people even in the Navy. And then the Army, the Army before Wilson was fairly segregated like you know people often have heard of like the buffalo soldiers and other um you know famous the harlem hellfighters come to mind too yeah yeah, but that's, yeah. that's a little later but yeah 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 but but where you would have these all black units and for a long time they would only have white officers um but you know but it but it wasn't always a hundred percent jim crow um airtight segregation in all times and places you know it, it would sort of vary with like what unit you were in the circumstances under which you were deployed or whatever. And, and there were in, instances before Wilson where you, you did sometimes have black and white soldiers, you know, sharing facilities being more or less side by side, whatever. Um, but Wilson, you know, uh, again, he didn't, he didn't push it, but he also didn't push back when his cabinet secretaries were like, all right, we're going to institute hardcore Jim Crow. So, yeah, well, and he um, would he would justify it uh, to again to bring back the term he would justify it as okay, a means yeah. to reduce friction like that right. was always what he loved to say which like it, I'm sorry I just got to make the 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 modern day parallel I'm sorry the context of reducing friction I see no qualitative difference between what Wilson was allowing to happen within his own government and these pushes in usually very elite college spaces. Uh, to have quote unquote black only spaces, things like that, like self segregation. And while I, you know, if people want to segregate themselves, that's their business. But at the same time, the rhetoric seems to be 
pretty much in line with let's reduce friction. Or, I mean, they wouldn't use those terms, but they uh, like today. But people who would advocate for these segregated spaces would would invoke things like safety or um, uh, basically just terms that would imply that an integrated space would cause friction in so many right. words. And I, I see no qualitative difference there. It's just, it's who's implementing it is the only difference, but the actual like mentality is exactly the same. Yeah. This benevolent sounding paternalistic idea of, um, yeah, it's this, it's the same impulse that's behind uh, safe spaces and trigger warnings in a way, right? Right. It's like we're, we're going to shield you from any even discomfort you know, let alone physical conflict or danger, but even discomfort, we, we're gonna we're gonna be your nanny and protect you. Um, and and yeah, that that was his his justification for keeping segregation where it was already established and not doing anything against it, and also his explanation for instituting segregation where it didn't already exist or where it only existed a little bit before, like in the, in the government itself. Uh, he. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And, and the thing that I I hit him with, and, and it, it's also, it's it's doubly, um, I'm not sure the right, right word, uh, uh, tragic maybe, um, unfortunate that he he was the first Democratic Party candidate for president to get any significant number of black votes whatsoever. Uh, he was not the first. Uh, the first Democrat to actually get a majority of black votes in an election is FDR, and it's actually not even until his his first re-election campaign in 36. Um, even in 32, more black people who cast a ballot voted Republican than Democrat. But 36 was the first time in American history that we know for sure um, a Democratic Party candidate got the majority of black votes cast in that election. Um, but Wilson was the first to get any significant number whatsoever. And this kind of makes it doubly, you know, problematic uh, that that he then is, like even by the standards of, of the time, um, he's a bit more racist in policy than most. Like Teddy Roosevelt was definitely a racist, but Teddy Roosevelt didn't, you know, institute segregation in all of the departments that had black employees, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and like Grover Cleveland, who was the previous Democratic president, um, I, I should say I'm, I'm somewhat of a fan of Grover Cleveland because in my view, he's like the last generally, you know, relatively good Democrat president because he's an old school Democrat of the kind of, you know, small government, um, you know, kind of proto Ron Paul type of a Democrat. Um, whereas Wilson is, is the first democratic president of like the, the big government progressive sort of a, a strain of Democrats. And, you know, Cleveland was also by the standards of the time, decent on race. 
Um, he was a Northern Democrat. He was from New York. So, you know, and he had to tolerate the Southern Democrats as a part of his coalition. So, you know, you could accuse Cleveland of like not taking enough stands against racist policies, maybe. But at the same time, um, you know, Cleveland didn't uh, institute rigid segregation throughout the federal government. Um, he also, those positions, like I mentioned before, that were considered by that time period sort of like informally reserved for black um, people, you know, in certain government departments, Cleveland appointed black people to those sorts of jobs when he was president. Um, and Cleveland even, um, you know, went up against Congress once or twice on that, where Southern senators would say like, no, we're not going to conf uh, confirm uh, your applicant to be, you know, such and such office at the post office. And um, Cleveland actually fought back against racist sen senators on a few of those appointments and won and, you know, got his black appointees uh, installed. And um, with Wilson, even the few times that he did try to appoint a black person to a fairly high position that had been held by black people previously, um, as soon as the racist senators started to raise a bit of a fuss, in almost every instance, he, Wilson would just immediately fold and, you know, <laughs> retract the nomination. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and in the, in the point that I tried to make, um, and I probably didn't make it as, as concisely as I might have, you know, maybe, maybe people would accuse me of being a little too long winded at times, but you know, there's, there's worse attributes for a podcaster, I guess. I was going to say, we're, we're, I was going to say we're history podcast. We're long form history podcasters that we have to be long winded. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, if you can sum up the historical context in 10 minutes, isn't it, you know, six times as good to do it in an hour. I mean, um, <laughs> you know. so, but, but the point I made was basically that he claimed to believe that black people were in the long run capable of eventually evolving up to the level of white citizens. And that, that in some long run of history, maybe eventually black and white people could kind of live side by side on, on conditions of rough equality. But, but he also thought like, but that's so far off in the future. It's not even, you know, on the horizon as a doable thing in anyone's lifetime that's currently living and so my point is like, you're, you're never going to start to erode because he would say things like if, if you let black and white employees mingle together in the same facilities and so forth, there's going to be tensions there's, you know, and it's going to be mutual. There, there are going to be white employees that don't like being around black people and vice versa. I, and, I just gotta, I just gotta cut in because like, what does he think human interaction in general is like there's always tensions no matter who's talking like does he not he must not have understood that or if he did he was being willfully ignorant i mean i i just can't wrap my head i mean like yeah i guess you could say okay well in the case of white and black employees being in the same lunchroom maybe a racial issue could come up but hey maybe they just are gonna have tension because one of them likes the yankees and the other one likes the the Red Sox or whatever, you know, it's like it, tension is inherent to human interaction. Like I just, that just, I'm sorry. It just, that, that is the part. I remember you talking about this and I was, I was on a run and I just, I, I didn't do it, but I was very close to yelling at my phone. What the fuck is the matter with you, Wilson? <laughs> like, what do you think the human experience is? Yeah. And it also, his, his statements on this struck me as him just being sort of, uh, lazy and cowardly and kicking the can down the road because my view is like 
if you've got this racially segregated society, at whatever point in time you decide to desegregate those segregated institutions and spaces, there's going to be a, an adjustment period, for lack of a better term, where, yes, there probably will be a temporary increase in tensions and, you know, animosity if you've got these groups that have been physically separated by law for generations and where, you know, at least the white side of the divide has been pumped with propaganda for generations about their superiority and the other people's inferiority. It's like, yeah, the first time you, you integrate a place that's been segregated for generations, probably there will be an increase in friction. But at the same time, if you're never willing to go through that, that transition phase where things maybe get a little bit uncomfortable, you're never going to solve the problem of segregation because you're just going to keep kicking the can down the road. You're just going to say, well, you know, like imagine uh, if, if somebody of the same mindset as Wilson was still around in the 1950s and 60s running things, they'd, they'd be like, yeah, but it, you know, if we desegregate all the schools, like there's probably going to be some racial tensions and even some violence in some cases that'll happen. It's like, there were yeah. people who were saying that too. That's yeah. what's so funny about it. It's like, it, it's yeah. The, the idea of integrate. Well, and I think honestly, this is me maybe being, too much of a mind reader or a cynic, one might say, but I think that the real reason why he wanted to quote unquote reduce friction is if he just integrated and created a, um, we could just say a, like a non-harmonious whole that would run counter to his core ideology with regards to everything, but especially with regards to race, because he, I mean, I guess what I'm sort of getting at is like, I, I, there are people who might think that, oh, well, did the ideology come first or was the ideology a justification for his own bigotry? I think some people might think it was the latter. I think it was the former. I think his ideology did not allow for him or people like him to believe that integration was something um, desirable, at least in the, in the short, at least when he was doing things, when he was in power. And I'll give the devil his due. Um, sure. That there was one um, piece by an academic historian on Wilson and race that I, I read and that I, I cited a bit in my episode that was pretty close to my take on Wilson and race. There were a few things here and there that I differed on with this guy. Um, and I'm, I'm blanking on the historian's name, but it was basically like an essay or an article length piece that was in a collection I have of pieces on various aspects of Woodrow Wilson and um and and he made a point that i i think is valid that wilson to his credit evolved a bit on race questions related to like citizenship and nationality um in regard to some of the white but non wasp ethnic groups um in particular in particular uh catholics um especially irish and Jews, actually. Wilson, um, by the latter part of his academic career and then continuing into his political career, he was pretty good on Jews and Catholics, again, especially the Irish, um, by the standards of that time period. And um, like you, you can even look at when he was running Princeton, when he's president of Princeton, he adamantly refused to allow uh, the admission of any black students. But he he did have um admittedly fairly small numbers but still he did have um catholic students 
you know, coming into Princeton and Jewish students coming into Princeton in small numbers. And um, if memory serves, I, I think he actually is, he appointed the first Catholic and the first Jewish faculty members, I believe, of Princeton. And then, you know, as president, in regard to those groups, at least, he was pretty good by the standards of back then. Um, and, you know, I, and I asked the question in the episode, and I have no answer because I can't read the guy's mind. Um, but, you know, how much of him being pretty good on Catholics and Jews is like a genuine heartfelt evolution? Because I think earlier in his, you know, as, as a younger man and as a, you know, early in his academic career, a lot of his mentors would have been almost as vehemently bigoted against Catholics and Jews as they were against blacks, like a, a lot of the progressive academics who were his professors. Um, and so, you know, I give him credit that he evolved on those, but like how much of his, his, um, you know, becoming more inclusive with Catholics and Jews in regard to questions of American citizenship, how much of that is genuine heartfelt evolution? Cause like, I don't know, maybe he got to know more Catholics and Jews and realize like these aren't horrible people. Um, and how much of it is just simply the reality of the democratic party at the time that Wilson was a Democrat, had been born and raised a Southern Democrat and Catholic and Jewish voting constituencies happened to be two of the big uh, pieces of the Democratic Party coalition at the time. And so pragmatically, he kind of realized, like, I can't be a dick to Catholics and Jews because I'm a Democratic politician running for president. I need the votes of Catholics and Jews as part of my coalition to get me into the White House. And, you know, those two things are not mutually exclusive, right? Because people often are ideologically more amenable to changing their mind on issues if it also happens to benefit their career, you know? Um, so, so I'll give him his credit. Like you can find other, you know, Anglo-Saxonist, eugenicist, progressive type intellectuals of his generation who still um, would argue things like that, you know, Irish Catholics can never really be good American citizens. Jews can never really be good American citizens. Um, Italians can never really be good American citizens. And, you know, Wilson was better on, on those groups, but yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in regard well, to non-white groups, still mostly pretty bad. Right. And and you mentioned this, uh, it, it came up uh, in what you were talking earlier about the sort of, um, I think you did use, I, I do like the word tragedy to describe like the level of support that Wilson got from uh, black Americans in his uh, election. It wasn't as big, as you say, uh, as it was, you know, 20 some years later with uh, FDR, but um, I, I think that the best example of that tragedy, but also I think uh, heroism comes from a character you spent some time with in this episode that I really want to highlight for my listeners who haven't listened to your episode yet. And that's William Monroe Trotter, who I had never heard of until you talked about him. And uh, you know what? I'm just not going to give any more preamble. I just, uh, who is William Monroe Trotter? How was he connected to Wilson? And how did he stand up to him? I ba basically is what I'm asking. Yeah. So, um, uh, Monroe Trotter and, and from what I've, I've read, yeah, his name was William Monroe Trotter, but he, he typically just kind of went by M Monroe Trotter. Uh, he was a, a black civil rights activist and intellectual and, um, I'm blanking on the name of it, but he, he ran, uh, one of the leading, uh, black newspapers of, of sort of like a radical civil rights perspective at the time. And, you know, he was considered uh, closer to like the W.E.B. Du Bois, more kind of radical um, 
you know, part of the civil rights movement of back then, uh, as opposed to the more moderate, you know, Booker T. Washington uh, gradualist types. And he was one of uh, several very prominent um, kind of progressive black leaders who endorsed Wilson in his first run for the presidency in 1912. And during the campaign, during the 1912 campaign, Wilson um, sounded pretty good on the issue of race. Now, he kept it kind of vague and, and, you know, now there's good reason to think on purpose considering what ended up happening once he was in the white house, he kept it kind of vague. Um, but you know, he, he made some, some statements and some like open letters and things, uh, to some of these prominent black progressive types that sounded pretty good and, and convinced many of them that like, we should at least give him a chance. And, um, to be fair, part of it was because the Republican party, had been really just kind of like half-assedly pandering for a while. You know, for, for a while um, in the aftermath of the Civil War, a, a lot of Republican politicians seem to have been at least somewhat genuinely uh, concerned with, you know, black rights and things like this and, and did do some things and whatever. But by the time you get to the turn of the century and into the early 20th century, it, a lot of it was just kind of like half-assed pandering um, like, oh uh, yeah, we'll appoint a few, you know, when a Republican would get elected president, like, oh yeah, he's going to appoint a few black people here and there, but like, you know, he's not really going to, going to, going to gamble any serious political capital on like, you know, taking federal action against lynching or, or, you know, against segregation or whatever. Um, and so, you know, understandably a lot of black leaders who had been, you know, solid Republicans for decades, we're like, what is this getting us? You know, okay, we get a few appointees every few years, but whatever. And so they see Wilson, and particularly to a guy like Trotter, you know, setting race stuff aside um, on on just political issues generally. He was, as far as I can tell, basically a progressive. And so a lot of the rest of Wilson's platform of, you know, progressive uh, programs and policies, a guy like Monroe Trotter would have agreed with. And so the fact that he was already sympathetic to those aspects of Wilson and then Wilson sounded decent on race, um, convinced not just Trotter, but also uh, Du Bois and, and some other prominent black leaders of the time. I'm trying to remember the guy's name that I, I mentioned a bit in the episode. He was like a black uh, uh, bishop of some sort. Um, I think his last name was. I think his last name was Alexander, actually. Um, mm. I was going to say, I, I do remember you taught. I mean, I Trotter was the one who stuck out in my mind, obviously. But uh, yeah. yeah, I remember you talking about a, a fair few of these guys who yeah. came over to Wilson because, it, like you said, it's like, well, what are we getting from, you know, the Republicans? Not much. OK, well, let's, you know, let's put our faith yeah. in. Let's take a chance with the Democrats. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't at all, like, blame them of course for doing that in 1912 like I, I completely am sympathetic to you know okay we've been voting republican where where we were able to vote anyway we've been voting solidly republican for decades and like yeah they they did some stuff for us for a while you know passed those amendments after the civil war and some things like that and you know a couple of the presidents during reconstruction did use the military against the clan and stuff like that but like now you know, here we are into the 1900s and it's kind of stalled out. So 
So like, I, I, I don't blame them at all for, for thinking about taking a chance on the Democrats, um, at least, you know, initially, but yeah, once Wilson came in and it pretty quickly within a matter of months started to become obvious that he was going to be, if anything, worse on race issues than even a lot of Northern Democrats of his time period. Trotter, to his credit, um, wasn't taking any shit and was not going to keep the tendency very often psychologically when a when a prominent public figure endorses a political candidate and that candidate goes into office and then starts not at all delivering on the things that cause that person to to endorse them to begin with and maybe even starts doing the opposite of the things that earned that person's endorsement um you know the the tendency psychologically i think is for the public figure to not want to admit oh i made a mistake i read this guy wrong instead there's this sort of you know desire to want to try to like justify it and be an apologist and you know you see this all the time right where like fairly far left progressive democrats will endorse biden and then biden doesn't even make a make an effort to deliver on Medicare for all and a $20 minimum wage or whatever else it is. And, you know, to like AOC or somebody like that, who's, who seems to be radical, but is in fact a very disingenuous uh, person who, who caves every time, um, you know, the tendency is that if they make any public statements, they won't retract their endorsement. They won't start criticizing the person strongly. They'll just sort of say like, well, I'm a little bit disappointed, but after all, there's these political constraints and I understand like he's got to work with the Congress and he can't just do whatever he wants. And, you know, but um, Trotter, to his credit, as soon as Wilson started clearly um, acting contrary to, um, you know, what he had at least implied about race in the campaign. Um, Trotter turned against him pretty quickly, um, managed to get two meetings with the president, uh, one during his first year in office and one during his second. Those meetings are incredible, by the way. The ones, uh, I think it was a... Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Second one where you really got into like the nitty gritty of it. And uh, you pointed out Wilson's tick which I wanted to talk about his use of the word yeah. now where, and when you read it and you weren't even emphasizing the now all that much, but you highlighted it ahead of time. And when you did that, that like really helped me sort of realize what he was doing. He was flustered. He was saying now, because he was like, now listen here is what he was basically. I just, I mean, all I heard is foghorn leghorn when he was talking, yeah. but, but yeah, like the, um, like he was, to, I mean, when you hear him say now the way he's like, uh, saying things and the way he's flustered. I encourage all my listeners, if you haven't already, uh, go listen to this. I'm, I, I'm wondering if the transcripts are available online to read. But regardless, the the way he's talking to Trotter, he it's like when he lets his guard down, the 
it's almost like his paternalistic uh, um, condescension comes out in his verbal tics. Like he's like, it, like it is like he's saying, "Now listen here, boy," is basically what he's saying, and it's like, yeah, it's 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 unnerving and kind of like skin crawling. Actually, I, I I felt creeped out and grossed out when you were reading Wilson's responses to Trotter's criticisms during that second meeting. It's 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 remarkable, actually. Yeah, yeah, and I I did find those online, um, in like an archive somewhere off the top of my head. I don't remember where, um, but. And and that was a fascinating part of the research for that episode when I finally found like the the full length transcripts of both of those meetings because yeah he he had one meeting with Wilson uh, in 1913 uh, during Wilson's first year as president and then one more I think the very next year he's got all these things he brings up all these concerns you know largely relating to like segregation being implemented throughout the government uh, civil service and things and you know Wilson give some answers that, uh, I mean, you could definitely see as being kind of dismissive and like, you know, sort of uh, uh, placating, you know, pandering kind of a thing where he's like, oh, gee whiz, you know, there might be a few uh, mistakes and, you know, things happening. All looking. We had good and, intentions. The, the We had good intentions yeah, BS. Yeah, yeah, like that, yeah. that's a favorite of, well, I, I don't want to just pin this on progressives because everybody does it, but it is a very, it's a favorite sort of like justification that progressives like to use, especially like what you're talking about when oh, yeah. like, it's like, Oh, we're supporting Biden, even though he doesn't live up to any of our standards whatsoever, historically or presently, but he has good intentions. He's not a fascist, like that kind of mentality. And Wilson literally does say, we came at this with the best intentions. It's just, it's sickening is what it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he kind of says like, you know, we're not doing uh, all these segregationist policies because we want to harm black people. To the contrary, this is going to be better for both black and white employees of the government. And again, he uses that whole idea of reducing friction as his explanation for like how this is actually a benevolent thing meant to be a favor to black people. Um, and so, you know, Trotter brings up all his objections, gets these kind of like half-assed, you know, justifications and evasions and, you know, Oh, I'll look into it and that kind of dismissive sort of stuff. And then he has a, he has another meeting a year later where he's even more Trotter's even more pissed off because he's like, all right, it's been a year. Um, not only have you not, you know, fixed any of the problems I brought up last time, like you, it, almost everything's gotten worse. Um, and and he's he's really like he he stays uh, Trotter. You know, it's very admirable the way he handles himself when because it was it was very fascinating to me to to read those transcripts word for word because. I've read a whole bunch of Wilson biographies by this point. I've read at least a half a dozen, like really big, dense, um, you know, many hundreds of pages detailed biographies of Wilson. And those meetings are almost always mentioned. And they'll, they'll typically be some quotes enough to give you a sense of like, oh, yeah, you know, here's here's this uh, black activist who's like kind of pushing back against Wilson. That, you know, good for him. Um, but it's totally different when you read the entire thing word for word of the whole meeting, because you know, Wilson had a secretary there doing shorthand, taking down notes that now are transcribed into longhand. And um, because like you were saying, like you get to watch not just what they're saying, but through the transcript, you can kind of get a sense of even how they're saying it sometimes. And and, you know, Trotter comes off very well, I think, because he is he's very much standing his ground and refusing to be, you know, dismissed and placated and whatever and pandered to. Um, but he doesn't lose it. He doesn't lose his cool. He doesn't like you can tell he's getting kind of angry, but he stays 
um, at least through the transcript, seems like very professional sounding, you know, tries to stay polite uh, with the president as much as he can, but also being quite firm. And like you were saying, Wilson, especially in the second meeting, um, kind of loses his cool. And you can see this in various ways. Um, but yeah, part of it is verbal tics coming out. And we all have verbal tics. I mean, somebody sure. can go back through this this podcast or any of my podcasts <laughs> and, and identify all of my tics. And I promise you, I'm already aware of them because uh, I do my own we, editing. I was going to say, we all, I think all of us are very aware of our own verbal tics. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and please, please don't go back. Uh, we already invited it. It's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to happen. Yeah. But regardless, no, nobody. Yeah. Nobody is more aware of their own verbal tics than a podcaster who does exactly. his or her own editing, you know. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, it comes out where you can tell, and the biggest one is starting sentences off with now, which in the transcript, it's very often, you know, now, comma, blah, 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 blah. Now, I'm telling you. Now, you brought this up last time. Now, I'm telling you, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, it's simultaneously, I think, a symptom of Wilson losing his cool because he typically was a very skillful communicator and I don't think um, exhibited a lot of verbal tics normally, either in speeches or conversations. So it's a symptom that he's losing his cool and getting flustered. And yeah, in that he's also in, in losing his cool, his, um, you know, deep seated racist attitudes, I think are starting to become manifest. Whereas uh, in, in the initial phases of the meetings where he's not losing his cool, you know, if you just read that, you wouldn't get a, and you knew nothing else about Wilson, you wouldn't get a sense that he was a racist. Whereas when he starts to lose his cool, yeah, it, it comes across as sort of condescending and paternalistic. He's absolutely and, talking down to Trotter. I mean, and, well, he reveals it too with just the way, with the, specifically with what he's saying. Like you said, it's when he loses his cool, it's the mask drops. And uh, the the real, um, well, I mean, just to like, you know, use another uh, what what I'm sure some listeners consider an insufferable modern day analogy, but I think we need to do it with Wilson, especially. It's kind of like when you see like uh, crazy Antifa activists calling black police officers the N word. It's like you're really showing what's going on in your head. You're trying to find an excuse to let your racism out. That's what Wilson was doing. And, and so, well, he wasn't trying to find an excuse, but he had an excuse in his mind because this, this guy was not listening to reason is probably how he saw it. But in reality, the guy was just saying, no, what you're saying to me is complete BS. I am not tolerating this. And that's why I think Trotter deserves so much more attention. I mean, uh, are you uh, just on a side question? Are, are you aware of any um, biographies specifically of Trotter? Like, is he somebody who gets much historical play? That's a good question. I'm not aware of any biographies of him, but Okay. I've never specifically looked for one. Yeah. So, you know, I, I came across a fair amount about him in other sources as I was uh, researching for the episode on Wilson and race. And, you know, I mean, like I've, I've looked at his, his Wikipedia page, you know, and, and some, some basic things like that just to get like some, some broad, you know, context of kind of who he was and what he did. But yeah, I've, I've never specifically gone looking for a biography about him. So maybe there is something good out there. But yeah, he was a guy like I, I knew his name because I had read so many Wilson biographies where he comes up and these meetings are at least mentioned. But, you know, I didn't know very much about him at all until researching for this episode specifically. And yeah, I was I was very impressed because he 
he gave Wilson a chance. He publicly endorsed him as a prominent black leader. He endorsed Wilson in, in 1912. But within two years, he was like, I'm done. I'm done. This guy is clearly, you know, full of shit. Uh, when he, he says things that sound like he wants to help out black people in civil rights and everything. And uh, I don't trust him. And I regret that I ever endorsed him. And actually, um, he supported Wilson's opponent in 1916 and, and never, you know, n- never uh, went back at all to supporting Wilson or even the Democratic Party after that. And so, you know, I respect that where he's like, all right, you, you say you, you want to help out, you know, uh, my people. Uh, OK, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You, you say you want to help us out. All right. And then, you know, none of this. Oh, I'm going to start going into apologetics gymnastics mode, coming up with excuses of why not only are you not doing anything to improve the condition of black people, you're actually making it worse. No, like, like, fuck you. You know, I, I gave you my support and you completely failed. Um, and, 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 you know, it did worse than just not delivering you. You did the opposite yeah. um, of what we would have wanted. And so fuck you. You're I'm done supporting you. And he absolutely was living by the principle of fool me once while the, the I call it the, the George W. Bush principle. Um, yeah. But uh, you know what I mean? Like the fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And he was just like, okay, fine. Like you fool me twice. Because he he gave him one chance uh, after he, you know, gave him his, uh, his endorsement and said, and then when it wasn't met, he just said, like you said, fuck you, I'm done. And to me, that is one of the best embodiments of um, democracy for all its flaws. Like that's democracy in action right there. It's saying, Hey, I had your ear, Mr. President, and you listened to me and you said you would do something. You didn't do it. Well then fine. We live in a democracy. Uh, This is a comp, this is a marketplace of ideas in so many words and your ideas fucking suck. And I'm going over here. Like, I love that. I I think it's, I think it's beautiful, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, think about it too. The the stones it would take, yeah, to be a to be a black guy in 1913 America. You're having a meeting with the president, who is a white guy originally from the South that you know has at least some racist baggage in his in his background, and that you would go into a a meeting with the president in the White House. And refuse to let yourself be steamrolled or dismissed or placated or whatever, and to just stand up to him essentially and say, no, I'm not going to let you gaslight me. You said you were going to try and, you know, fix these situations and everything's getting worse. I, I brought receipts. I have like literally, you know, specific examples of, of all the, the racist shit I'm talking about. And I'm not going to let you just sort of like pat me on the head and dismiss me with a few bromides or whatever. Like I'm calling you out. And so, yeah, that that also, you know, earned uh, a huge amount of respect uh, from me for for Trotter. And, you know, the, the other thing that I got from reading those transcripts all the way through word, word for word was and I already had this to a degree from reading so many of Wilson's speeches and so many of his academic writings, but like how much of a bullshitter he could be when he wanted to be where there were two things in particular in his uh, exchanges with Trotter on this sort of, uh, of a vein that stuck out to me. One is he repeatedly said to Trotter things like this shouldn't be a political issue. 
which is just like, that makes no, he's like, it's not a political issue. It is a human issue. Like, what the fuck does that even mean, right? Like, uh, yeah, we're talking I, I, about, I'm banging my head against the wall here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're the president of the United States, and we're talking about issues of government policy. How the fuck is that not political inherently, no matter what, right? If, if you want to talk about human issues, become a priest, like asshole. Like, <laughs> don't be the president. <laughs> like, that's not your job. And, and then the other thing that, that he kind of said in different ways a few times that just, you know, I was like, man, you're so full of shit, was he also, um, at, at one point, I think it was in the second meeting where he loses his cool even more and it's even more adversarial, uh, Wilson, when when Trotter is kind of standing his ground and saying like, hey, look, you said you'd deliver on, on some civil rights stuff and you've made everything worse, Wilson at one point kind of has an angry outburst where he essentially accuses Trotter of like blackmailing him. He's like, how dare you try and like, you know, politically, you know, try to pressure me into doing what you want to do, what you want me to do. And like, that is literally how democracy is supposed to work is People tell their politicians what to do, and then if the politicians aren't delivering on what they said they were going to do once they're in office, you then bring political pressure if you're an activist or a constituent and say, hey, you ran on XYZ, you're not delivering, you're delivering on the opposite of XYZ, so hey, how about you fly right and start you know, doing what you said you were going to do, or else we won't vote for you next time. Like That's Civics class 101, the most basic idea of representative democracy. And Wilson is essentially saying, oh, you're trying to bring political pressure against me and say you're not going to vote for me. Well, then, you know, fuck you. I'm not going to allow myself to be blackmailed by you. And the whole time I'm thinking, I bet you we could find countless instances where it's, you know, white activists, white politicians, whatever, bringing political pressure on Wilson and that's not his his response whether he he bows to it or not whether he agrees with it or not his response isn't like oh my god you're going beyond the pale by trying to politically blackmail me his view would be with again whether he agreed with with the pressure or not his view would be like well you know that's that's how democracy works different different citizens uh, in groups and whatever try to pressure their politicians and that's just the way it works um so yeah there's this crazy double standard seemingly where you know, if it if it happens to be black voters saying, hey, you've got to earn my vote next time, then like, oh, that's you're hitting below the belt. That's beyond the pale. Um, but, you know, presumably he didn't do that with anybody else. Presumably. Yeah. And, and it's hard not to see parallels with progressive thinking these days. I mean, I'm sorry, I got to keep bringing this this gaffe up. I would call it a gaffe was during the 2020 election when Joe Biden said, if you vote for Trump and not me, you ain't black. Like that's the same mentality right there. It's not just an old man thing. That is an ideological mentality. I really do think that. And it's it's disturbing and dehumanizing to use the word you brought up earlier. I, I think it's one of those things that kind of, at least in regards to the race question, kind of shows Wilson as the prototype for what, how things have largely been throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. I, I think we might be reaching a point where that's changing. Uh, but I, I think when you look at Wilson and how he treated people like uh, Monroe Trotter, 
you, you get a very good window into that mentality, the the, the core mentality of, of how uh, it's not even just like how people um, in in uh, in progressive spaces treat marginalized voices. It's also just a window into how anti democratic they are at their core. And Wilson, I'm sure is not. It's, this is not news to you. Comes off as pretty anti democratic when he's saying that you you coming to me as uh you know as a black man and like saying you don't like what i did and and you know repeatedly standing up to me like that is a form of blackmail like that's just an ex- that's a that's another mask off moment it shows how little he has how little regard he has for democracy in general i would think even if it's mm-hmm. selective based on race i would imagine that he probably had that in mind if somebody who was white stood up to him more than once on the same issue, he would probably feel like he was, or at least express that he's being blackmailed by this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, one instance I can think of. Um... Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Where he seems to have had a somewhat similar or parallel um, reaction is in regard to um, Republican hesitation and reservations about the Treaty of Versailles, where he... Um, Again, regardless of what anybody thinks about whether the U.S. ratifying the Treaty of Versailles, you know, would have been a great thing or not, whether it would have had a huge uh, positive effect on subsequent history or not, setting setting aside what you think about the Treaty of Versailles, um, I think it's just objectively the case that Wilson potentially could have gotten the thing ratified if he had just been willing to kind of negotiate in good faith a little bit with some of the Republican congressional leaders and maybe, you know, give them a couple, throw a couple bones to them, you know, Um, address uh, some of their reservations about the treaty that, you know, were not like essential aspects of it. And okay, let's change this one thing over here. Let's, let's throw in a caveat over there, whatever. Um, And, and, and hammer out some sort of compromise. But yeah, he, he, it's interesting how he kind of selectively would turn on his kind of default Manichaean setting where um, with the Republicans who had problems with the Treaty of Versailles, he suddenly would just go very Manichaean instead of saying, well, you know, can I persuade them? Can I, um, you know, maybe try and, and, and compromise with them a little bit, uh, throw a few bones to them to get what I want in the big picture past? Um, instead, it was more just like, nope, the battle lines are drawn. And instead of trying to work with them, he tried to um, appeal directly to the American people to then in turn pressure their congressmen, which, hey, you know, he's he's inciting political blackmail. Right. But of course, <laughs> when he does it, it's not political blackmail. Right. When when he tries to bring popular pressure on members of Congress, that's all well and good. But, you know, heaven forbid some citizen activists, particularly if they happen to be black, 
uh, try and directly appeal and pressure him politically. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's double standards, there's elitism, there's um, Manichaeanism, all these sorts of things. But for sure, I think what you see with Wilson um, just as a personality trait, but that also characterizes a lot of progressives ever since is this kind of combination of uh, elitism and entitlement. This idea that I, and it also sort of ties in with like this idea of the inevitable march of history towards some teleological utopia. Um, it's all kind of kind of bound up together where, you know, look at the way that the progressive establishment reacted to Donald Trump defeating Hillary Clinton in 2016. It's really obvious that most progressive Democrats, especially, you know, kind of the more establishment progressive they are, their their view was like, this wasn't supposed to happen. Hillary Clinton was predestined to, you know, just sort of like walk into the White House that, I mean, everybody objectively should agree that she's the best candidate ever. And that she's going to continue the glorious march of history that we had going under Obama. And that, um, you know, the, the stupid rubes who make up the masses, particularly in flyover country, they should have voted for who we told them to vote for and who was inevitable. Yeah. They voted against their interests is the big line. And that I, that to this day we hear it, it hasn't changed, even though it's been however long, uh, seven years since that. So yeah, yeah it's th- that kind of rhetoric has always, th- that already rubbed me the wrong way, but it, it really started to rub me the wrong way in recent years. And it really is that mentality that does stretch back to Wilson, that idea that I know what's best for you. Well, yeah, and it's very much an entitlement idea that I am entitled. Yeah. I am entitled to your vote. I am entitled to your support and obedience. And, um, you know, I am on the right side of history. And um, anyone who opposes me is not just, you know, someone with a different perspective or whatever, uh, but good intentions. It's like, no, you you are standing against what everyone agrees is the objectively right side of history. And this idea of entitlement and inevitability. And yeah, this is reflected in Joe Biden saying, if you don't, vote for me, you're not black. You, you ain't black. I tried to put it into bonics there, which, you know, if I, if I was a black person, I would be like ridiculously offended at, at that entire statement. <laughs> to, to Charlemagne the God's credit, he was just kind of, he kind of, I, I, I seem to, I'm probably inserting a memory into my own head, but I, 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 I seem to remember him making a face when Melvin Biden said that, just sort of like, what did you just say? <laughs> and that's the right answer is, what did you just say? <laughs> Yeah, I I think he did kind of push back and was sort of taken aback by it. I have no idea because I don't really follow him or know much about him. I have no idea like did he did he publicly you know endorse Biden after all that or not? Um, that's a that's an interesting question. But um, you know this this idea that like and and you can see it with like the Covidian regime as well, and the fact that the progressives are the biggest you know Covidians. I don't think is a coincidence. There's this idea of like. This this technocratic oligarchic elitism masquerading as democracy, which is what Woodrow Wilson called modern democracy. It's it's oligarchy with extra steps, as I'm fond of saying. And this idea that like your betters, the the experts, the science, they have told you what you're supposed to do and believe. They told you to wear a mask. They told you to get these shots that we just invented last week. 
Um, we know that they're safe long term, um, even though we only developed them a few months ago because magic, because we're the science, <laughs> so we know everything. And, um, you know, it's it's literally impossible to have any long term data on these things, but also we're sure that long term they're totally fine. Um, all these sorts of things. And and it all comes back to this idea of of kind of elitism and paternalism and technocracy and entitlement that i'm entitled to your vote i'm entitled to your support and and it's the same way that they they deal with um you know gay people and and all these sorts of things where um and 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 they they feel like they have the right and authority to exclude you from your own identity group if you don't fall in line politically and so a black person who's not a progressive or a gay person who's not a progressive, they want to like attack that. And they want to say, Oh, well, you know, if you're a, a black right winger or something like that, you're just a black white supremacist, or, you know, you're a self-hating gay person. If you're a, if you're a gay conservative. I, I referenced this somewhat earlier when I made my little uh, Antifa jab, but like in all seriousness, I have, like, yeah, you'll see like the obvious, you know, racists who like to parrot, you know, myth of the 20th century on Twitter and whatnot. And those people suck, but it, they're kind of self-evidently crazy. But I have never seen more overt bigotry than I have seen toward, I'm not even going to say conservative. I'm just going to say dissenting black voices or dissenting LGBTQ voices, just people who are like, yeah, you know what? I'm not on board with this project, this project of what I like to call of describing progressives at their core as being engineers of society. That's how they see themselves. And I think that that is like, I I think most Americans, I would wager most Americans, if you presented them with that way of looking at things, they would be like, whoa, 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 wait, no, 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 no. Don't engineer my world. I engineer my world. That's the American experience. We engineer our own worlds. And I think that the progressive idea has been very much concerned for over a hundred years at this point. If you really go back to the 19th century and you can see it with its association with eugenics, it's always been about engineering society. For a while, it was engineering nature that reaches its apex, its logical, horrific conclusion with the Third Reich, which was like the, it's like the peak expression of engineering nature. It becomes, it's so self-evidently evil that a rebranding is kind of necessary. And then it's instead of just thinking, hmm, maybe trying to engineer society is not a good idea. They just think, okay, well, the problem was we engine, we tried to engineer nature. Let's try to engineer nurture instead. Maybe the problem is engineering. The problem is not, it's not what you're trying to engineer. But yeah, like I, I really think that that's the, the through line, the lineage of progressivism from Wilson until today is this idea that we can engineer a perfect society. As you've pointed out, the teleological approach to history, uh, or the, we could just even shorthand it and call it the progressive view of history is we will reach an endpoint. We will reach this beautiful endpoint where everything is better. And, you know, it's, It's a reference to something that I used to kind of not like, and I still don't really like it, and this is kind of cheap, but I do think it's worth saying is that one man's progress is another man's tyranny. We can't just assume that that the end point is going to be desirable to everybody, including the people that it's supposed to benefit most. In the case of, say, someone like Woodrow Wilson, he's thinking that reducing friction – uh, segregating whites and blacks is better for black people and better for white people. It's better for everybody. Excuse me. 
maybe you should ask them first. Like that's what a democracy is. You let the people figure out what they want, how they want to engineer society. It's not your job, motherfucker. But I think that Wilson definitely embodies that, as do modern progressives today. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about this um, earlier today, you know, and your, um, I, I guess a, it was an article that you wrote, an essay that you wrote about um, progressives of Wilson's era were more fixated on nature, right? And and this led them to eugenics and things to think that like a lot of social problems ultimately come down to like bad, you know, genetics or whatever. And that modern progressives are more likely to to go hundred percent the opposite direction. Although not entirely, maybe, because you do occasionally get things like the Smithsonian Institute saying that like black people have a different conception of time, almost like inherently genetically, they you know wait a minute. I, I, I need to I need to press pause on that. I did not see that. Are you serious? I'm sure you're serious, but that's insane. <laughs> what? You're gonna have to send me that article later. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they I think they took it down, but it was at one of the Smithsonian museums. They had um like an exhibit that had something and this is two or three years ago that this happened. I think it was actually in 2020, like during the of summer of love time period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um where they they had uh one of the Smithsonian museums had some sort of an exhibit dealing with racial history in the United States. And there was something in there that essentially was saying that concepts like showing up on time and being punctual and working hard and like, you know, deferring gratification, these are all white uh, ideas. Yeah. If you, if you say that these are objectively good attributes, you're being a white supremacist. And it's, it's another one of these sort of like, you know, soft bigotry of low expectation things where it's the implication is sort of like, well, you can't expect black people to be on time and work hard. It's like they're just genetically not, you know, they don't value that. You're speaking of it rhetorically there, obviously, but even you just saying that out loud made me uncomfortable because that's so racist of an assumption that people would make. But anyway, I'll continue, please. Well, it's one of those it's one of those horseshoe moments where uh, where the racism of like the race realist, you know, kind of like quasi neo neo nazis types and and then the beliefs of the hardcore progressive wokies like come together where yeah. it's like you know white supremacists are like yeah black people are lazy and can't show up on time and you know are dumb and progressives are like yeah because you know that's just part of their culture and we can't judge them for that um there's a i'm, I'm trying to remember um there's a great um youtube video Oh, are you talking about Ryan Long's uh, comedy video that went super viral? The uh, yeah, when, the one where it's when, like when woke and racist agree. Yes, yes, that's um, a that's a classic that's, video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm tr- I'm trying to get the exact um, uh, title just it's, for anybody. Well, I, in case people don't, I mean, they could just look up Ryan Long on YouTube. I think it's his most popular sketch that he's done, and it's it's very funny. It's it's one of the funniest like like pieces of political satire, I think from the last few years, I would say it's, um, and it's funny too, especially watching how there's a number of people out there who have tried to respond to it critically, just saying, Hey, that's, that's not true. Okay. Well explain how it's not true without saying it's different when the right does it, (laughs) like, which I have yet to see. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as, as soon as you start, and and to me, that shows you that like the current iteration of progressivism has has in many ways moved to like it's all nurture, it's all environment, right? And this is how you can say things like blank slateism, yeah, yeah, biological sex doesn't exist, and exactly. You know, that a that a dude with a beard and a hairy chest and even a dick and balls can just one day say I'm a woman and we all have to like pretend like oh yeah magically uh you're you're a woman and in fact you've always been a woman now we have to even like re- when, even when we're speaking about you retroactively we now have to pretend that you know um when you were a teenage boy going through puberty you were already a woman because magically you said you are now um and this sort of thing and and, and so I was thinking about it, the, the, the extreme social constructivism, right, where, where you say, like, there literally is no um, genetic component to anything, right, that, you know, we're, we're just going to pretend, like, for example, there's no genetic component to things like IQ whatsoever, you know, um, which, come on, let's, you know, let's be grownups here. Yeah, there's genetic components to everything, just like there's nurture components to everything. Yeah. That's why, you know, people can be completely, like, destitute and poor or working class. I'm going to say destitute, just working class and be legit geniuses. Like um, Eric Hoffer, working class longshoreman, writes one of the greatest books of the 20th century, The True Believer. Like the man was not educated. He was self he was self-educated. He was an autodidact or the uh, one of the creators of the Oxford English Dictionary, James Murray, complete poor Scottish peasant, and he is one of the smartest men of the 19th century. Like it's, there's clearly more than just nurture going on, but it's also insane to give, you know, to, 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 you know, you know, keep our eye on the ball here. It's insane to say that it's all inherited. Of course, not everything is inherited. We inherit everything like through nature and nurture as a combination. That's just a fact. And I think that when you're ideologically concerned, particularly if you are of a progressive mindset in the last 150 years, it's very clear you don't want to hear that. It's either all one thing or now all the other thing. And that is like fundamentally an insane way to look at the world. Yeah, I'm I'm not a conservative, but I have a fair amount of sympathy for mm-hmm. sort of like classic old school kind of Burkean conservatism. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, a lot of modern day American conservatism isn't that. Right, um, yeah. But Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, that that vein of conservatism, I, I have some sympathy for um, a lot of the time because I appreciate the humility and the sense of constraints that's in something like Berkey and conservatism, where it's like there, those people have much more of a sense of humility in the face of infinitely complex systems. So, you know, a Berkey and conservative would say, you don't want to do, yes, you, you want your society and your political system to be able to evolve, but you want it to only be able to do it gradually. 
because um, the likely it's like the Chesterton's fence idea, right? That, um, you know, if you come across a fence, you don't want to rip it down before you have figured out why it's there. And that things like human civilizations are so complicated that you can't just say, oh, I'm going to, you know, in a top-down technocratic way, I'm just going to start redrawing society from the top to bottom uh, because there's going to be infinite things you don't understand that are going to cause unintended negative side effects. Human beings are not rocks that you can just manipulate um, and they don't, you know, change what they're doing. It's like, no, they, they respond to incentives and to changes and things. And um, a lot of times your best intentions are going to have really horrific, um, you know, results. And so one of the hallmarks of progressivism is this arrogance, this hubristic idea that no, 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 if we just have the right experts um, given enough power and resources, they can just, you know, ultimately even bring about utopia and that checks and balances are a bad thing uh, because they prevent, you know, wonderful progressive reformers from moving as quickly as they otherwise could. And so I was thinking about this transition from progressivism in Wilson's day being more focused on nature versus today in many instances, not always, but in many instances being, being more on the nurture side much more. And that in a way that shift makes sense um, because that lines up better with the other aspects of the progressive worldview that like, no, 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 uh, Ivy League educated technocrats can bring about utopia if they're just given enough power uh, with, with an, you know, few enough constraints on it. Um, and, and it made me think of, there's this idea that's in um, one of Thomas Sowell's books, actually, that... Um, he talks about kind of the difference between the broadly defined progressive worldview and the broadly defined conservative world worldview uh, is one of the key differences being the difference between an unconstrained versus a constrained view. Um, and I can't remember if he said just of humanity or of like reality itself, but basically the idea is that a, like a Burkean conservative has a very constrained view of the potential of human beings and even of things like resources and reality and what's possible. And so that's one of the main things that makes them be kind of cautious and skeptical about, you know, vast sweeping radical reforms upending society is that they have a constrained view. They say like, you know, you can't just make human beings and human society into whatever you want. Um, there are limits. There are limits of resources. There are limits of human nature. There are limits of, you know, all these sorts of things. And therefore you need to be very cautious and you need to try to be uh, prudent. And old school conservatives also applied this to foreign policy. This is one of the places where, you know, kind of modern uh, American kind of neocons go wildly off from, from traditional conservatism is, you know, an old school conservative would look at something like like George W. Bush saying, we're going to use military force to install democracy throughout the Middle East. An old school conservative would look at that and go, that is insane. That's like crazier than the craziest Jacobin ideas about spreading the French Revolution around the world. Like you you, you think you can just go into these places and remake them in your image at will. And like, no, 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 these people are going to push back. Um, you think you're just going to overthrow Saddam and, and you're going to get a Western democracy thriving in no time. Like, no, that's not how it's going to work. Um, so... It, to me, it makes sense because progressives 
And I would argue that, that neocons and neolibs are progressives. They're just right. They're types. part of the tradition established by Wilson, of course. Yeah. Wilson and his ilk, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're part of this tradition that you can use military force um, to, you know, remake entire nations in your own image and install governments of, of your choosing uh, and play God. And that this will actually work out fine as long as you're, you know, the right kind of Ivy League educated progressive technocrat. Um, but but it makes sense that progressives would over time uh, tend to more and more come down on the side of it's all nurture uh, because that lines up better with the unconstrained view of human beings and of reality, right? Because if you think if you think we can remake human beings individually and human society collectively into whatever the hell we want, um, then yeah, it makes sense that the like a corollary of that would be the blank slate idea of human nature and this idea that no, 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 we can, we can make anybody into anything just by their environment. And yeah, you know, if, uh, um, you know, an environment is way more manipulable than a person as we have discovered. I mean, until that is until of course, outright genetic engineering becomes possible, but, and then, and then honestly, you know, I don't want to get too futurist here, but, that when I thought about when you know we were leading up to this conversation, I was thinking about that. I was thinking, okay, so whatever the final endpoint, the logical conclusion of trying to engineer nurture is, instead of letting it go, by the time that endpoint is reached, we might be on the cusp of genetic engineering, and therefore it's just going to go all the way back to just trying to engineer nature, engineer all of humanity's problems away that way. And the like, it, it basically would not surprise me if the people who jump on board for advocating for genetic engineering would consider themselves progressive because that is so in line with how they view the world. It, there would have to be some political realignments, of course, where like it becomes acceptable to talk about genes again but uh, in, in those circles. But I, yeah, I, I can't imagine that would catch on with a Burkean conservative. And there's a fundamental philosophical question at play that I don't think enough people ask, and maybe I'll try to ask it if I'm ever you know, chatting with a, a progressive friend of mine, that, okay, let's assume we can engineer a good society through nature or nurture doesn't matter but we'll say nurture because that's what let's say we can engineer let's say we can mold humanity into the image that we see as ideal why is that good like like that question isn't asked enough and it's a real like nitty-gritty philosophical question but is it a good thing to rob well okay now i'm loading it but uh, is, is it a good thing to engineer people's um, experiences rather than let them engineer their own. Like that's the fundamental philosophical question. I would obviously say I kind of, you know, Freudian slip there. That's robbery. You're robbing people of their ability to create their own destiny. You're basically taking away the ability of uh, people to really consent to living in a free society at that point. I mean, that's really the fundamental philosophical problem I think there is with progressivism is that it's all about robbing individuals of consent and and ability to create their own destiny. Uh, does that resonate with you? Yeah. And it sort of makes me think of um, some of those dystopias that deal with you know, futures in which there's a lot of genetic engineering of humans taking place and stuff, you know, think of like a movie like Gattaca. Yeah. And great movie, by the way. <laughs> this, yeah. Yeah. Very, um, I, I think, uh, under remembered today, you know, it's, it's, it, I, I think it, it was, you know, 
I think somewhat successful of a movie at the time it came out, but it wasn't a huge hit, but I think it's, it's been kind of forgotten today, but it's definitely worth watching. Um, it, it, it grapples with a lot of these ideas and yeah, this idea of, you know, is there something kind of wabi-sabi about, about unengineered humanity that is worth admiring and worth defending and worth protecting. Like, is there something, if we lived in a future where you could just, you know, ask a scientist, uh, you know, your, your spouse is pregnant or you're pregnant if you're, uh, the woman, which I can actually define. Someone needs me to, um, that, uh, that you, you could just ask a scientist like, okay, uh, I want my kid to be, um, you know, uh, an Adonis like human specimen with 180 IQ and, you know, no genetic problems whatsoever and be, you know, six feet tall and beautiful. And, you know, um, but if everybody's engineering their kid that way, is there, is there anything wrong with that? Is there anything dark about that? Is there anything that might be admirable about a person who, um, you know, grows up to be a human being with all the imperfections, not, uh, weeded out of them? You know, is, is there something, on like a visceral gut level that's human about imperfection and about defects. And, um, you know, I, I've long been somebody who's comfortable with imperfection and wabi-sabi. Um, you know, I, I can appreciate um, something that's a little bit off, you know, something that's that's got a little uh, a scratch in it or, you know, like a person who's maybe got got like a little bit of an asymmetry somewhere, um, and, and I can look at that and, and still, you know, as long as they're not like crazy mutant with like three heads or something like that, I, I can look at someone who's, you know, got like a little bit of crooked teeth or whatever. And I can be like, you know what though, that, that there, there's, there's something, um, almost, uh, you know, wabi-sabi imperfect perfections. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the types of people who are drawn to an ideology like progressivism, I think have, um, a lot of them have, I believe, some sort of like deep-seated OCD. So they, you know, th- this then leads into like their demand for political conformity and their willingness to demonize anybody who's a dissident outside of their program as not just being, you know, someone with a different perspective or who's mistaken or whatever, but someone who's like evil standing in the way of the progress of history. Um, and... And and again, I, I come back to something I've talked about on my podcast before, which is this idea of emergent order versus imposed order. And this, again, connects to this idea of or when you're looking at a complex system like a human society, are you arrogant looking at it like an engineer saying, oh, I can just remold this into whatever I want with enough force? Um, or are you humble and like, huh, it's seen, yeah, it has its problems and its imperfections, but it seems to be functioning like no one's starving to death and people are mostly getting along. Okay. Um, maybe we should be really cautious about foisting giant top down changes onto this, this system. And, um, you know, that, that somebody like me, who's, you know, some sort of libertarian anarchist with some sympathy for Burkean style conservatism, I'm much more of an emergent order guy. I'm much more of a guy who's like, let, you know, and the free market is just one like incarnation of this idea. But this idea that 
yeah, as counterintuitive as it might seem, particularly to somebody who's, you know, has some OCD tendencies in their personality, as counterintuitive as it might seem, a free market system, while it's never going to be perfect and there's always going to be people, you know, struggling, it's a better alternative than a command economy, you know, Soviet style it's counterintuitive. People look at it and go like, of course your economy is going to be better if there's experts running it in a top-down fashion. Um, but the reality is like, no, that's that's not true. The, you're better off with a chaotic free market um, economy with emergent order because, yeah, there will always be imperfections and it'll never be perfect. But in general, you're going to get more good things um, through the seemingly chaotic emergent order system of a market than in a command economy. And that you could apply this to other things as well. You could apply this to things like culture that, you know, when you have both government and giant corporate interests and these weird kind of like NGO, like World Economic Forum, you know, social credit score ESG type institutions, um, that when you have those things running the culture, it's going to be bad. And that it's much preferable if you've got this anarchic, chaotic, free market of culture, but that is going to tend, um, over the long run, it's going to tend to be better for more people, you know, than a top-down, uh, controlled system of cultural, you know, products. Um, so yeah, a lot of it very often to me comes back to emergent order versus imposed order and it's tough because the the progressive intellectual and political elites, like they're psychologically and ideologically predisposed towards favoring always imposed order. And people like me, weirdo dissidents, are always skeptical of that and always instinctively more sympathetic to emergent order. And then there's the vast swath of kind of like not very ideological masses and they're not necessarily 100% sold on the progressive program, but a lot of them kind of go along with it for a variety of reasons. But part of it is just if you only think about it superficially and you go, what's likely to give you better results, a system in which experts are in charge and in control, or a system that's, you know, kind of more chaotic, bottom up, um, that, that a lot of people who've never really like thought about these things deeply, um, never studied the history of emergent versus imposed systems of order that superficially it seems more plausible that the top-down imposed system is going to be preferable to let's talk about medi-cal you have a choice and melina makes it easy so let's talk about making your life easier about extra help to manage your health nobody knows medi-cal better than melina visit meetmelinaca.com let's talk today something that seems much more chaotic and no one's in charge, quote unquote, in anarchic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the thing that makes, um, I, I think the thing that, that, that like challenges me a little bit actually is that, well, as much as I think that progressives are noxious because of their, you know, willingness to say, I know what's good for you. I'm also not willing to say that necessarily an emergent order is better for everybody because of what you're saying. I think some people go along with it because it does give them some measure of comfort. 
you and I might think it's it's uh, not a good idea. I I think it's reasonable for us to critique and say that it's um, bad for culture, it's bad for politics, it's bad for economics. But I think there are some people who who do need that kind of guidance because they they're busy, they have they have lives to attend to, they have um, you know, or or they just they're not particularly ambitious. There's that aspect of it too, and and it's tough because I, I think like. That that's what the balance of creating a good society is, is allowing for emergent systems to thrive without stifling them, but not making it so that it's complete chaos for those who just aren't, you know, capable of or willing to engage in that kind of what I think you and I would call an exciting way to live, but not everybody would. And that, that's why I have actually a lot of... Um, appreciation for it's funny i was just talking to a a fellow libertarian minded guy uh the comedian and podcast host andrew heaton just yesterday on, on his show and he was and he and i were talking about this about how there's this misapplication of the label socialist to the nordic countries to sweden norway denmark and so forth uh which is by, by americans particularly because americans don't really understand what socialism is. What they are missing when they call Sweden, we'll say, a socialist country is they're not realizing that there's a difference between that and social democracy. What Sweden is, is a much more capitalistic country than us. Like they have a much freer market than us. They have way fewer regulations than we do. They just have a really robust social safety net. And that's why I jokingly call myself an anarcho-capitalist with socialist characteristics, because I think if you have those safety nets, that allows for emergent order to exist you know, and everywhere except for particular things, the debate should be around what those particular things should be, in, in my view, at least. Uh, but I'm just making the point that I think that that's, that's the, 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 the tricky challenge of engineering a society, if you'll pardon the term, because you have to, you have to find that balance. You have to find what will provide for the people who don't appreciate emergent order as much uh, and, and those who do. And I, I think, uh, that's why I, I tend towards like what you're talking about, uh, when it comes to emergent order for myself, but why I'm not willing to, you know, put it on others, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. I mean, now I, I hate to sound like a, a bit of an elitist myself, but <laughs> you know, I, I sort of feel like it's, it's a case of people who understand and appreciate emergent order that that probably on average they're smarter <laughs> than the people who don't and yeah. that even even the smarter like more quote-unquote educated and intelligent progressives they're still mostly midwits as they say yeah i was about to say midwit <laughs> yeah and and that the people who really understand in an intellectual sense not just in an instinctive sense um how emergent order works and how order does spontaneously emerge out of chaos in, in many situations. Um, and the order that is produced by that is preferable usually to the order that's just imposed, you know, from, from the top down, um, you know, that it's, it's sort of more organic and more pragmatic and all these sorts of things that, that the people who understand that are probably just like whether it, it manifests in IQ score or not, but in some way are just sort of more smart and, or just don't suffer from the same OCD, compulsion to try and force order onto everything, um, even if it has negative side effects. I will say when you were talking about, um, you know, those who benefit from systems of imposed order, because yeah, somebody has to benefit from it or else it wouldn't be such a, a common and frequent thing throughout history. Um, 
But in our era, I would say that those who benefit the most from having so many uh, institutions of of coerced, imposed order are uh, the people we've talked about before, mm-hmm. the professional managerial Ah, uh, yes, yes. Well, yeah. The PMC. <laughs> those are the people who benefit the most from having so much of society be be comprised of systems of imposed order. Because if you think about it, a lot of the mid-level people at tech companies, the mid-level people in the government, the mid-level people at the giant uh, media and entertainment corporations like Disney, you know, those are typically people who are not all that talented and creative. They might be a little bit above average intelligence, but they're usually, you know, midwits. They're usually not the smartest people. They're certainly... Uh, not even remotely the most creative and innovative people. And a lot of them in a system that was overwhelmingly characterized by uh, emergent order, a lot of them wouldn't be doing very well. A lot of them would be doing like menial jobs and things. And by having this system of imposed order, one of the things that it tends to, um, you know, spawn and sort of be inextricably connected to are these large bureaucratic institutions, whether they be nominally public or private. And those then provide all of these bullshit jobs uh, that, you know, of middle management and their equivalents. And, um, you know, that those jobs wouldn't exist if, if you had a system that was much more characterized by emergent order. And um, one of the, one of the things that, that it seems to me characterizes emergent order systems is a higher degree of meritocracy. Whereas systems of imposed order, merit tends to take a back seat and is often like number four or five on your list at best to who gets what jobs and who gets promoted how how high. Um, that emergent order will always tend to have a greater degree of meritocracy than a system of imposed order. So I think then it is safe to say that we have a lot to thank Woodrow Wilson for (laughs) based on everything we've been saying. Not because he invented it. He didn't invent it, but he did, uh, to use a favorite term from the last couple of years, he normalized it to the point where it's now just, I mean, yes, other people played a part. Obviously other people played a part, but let's, let's give the devil his due, as you say, and, and pin it on Wilson, who I I affectionately want to call the first woke president. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he wasn't, you know, woke by the standards of today, because um, a lot of the the as- the racial aspects of wokeism are now just like the inverse, right? Where in, in Wilson's day, you would say, if if you were a Wilsonian type person on this, you would say, you know, black people are just in some way inherently they they would put it genteely. They wouldn't express it the way a Klansman would, but they would say like, oh, you know, they're not as far along the progress of history, you know, the path towards modern democracy and so forth as as uh, the Nordic peoples or something. Um, and today's progressives are much more likely to still be racist, but just do it the other way and be like, well, you know, there's something inherently bad about white people, especially if you're a straight white. It's man. not even white people. It's uh, whiteness, yeah. whiteness itself. Yeah, it's it's yeah. this like abstract what? concept or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a spirit. You know, it's, it's, it's almost sort of like what, what Christians say when they talk about the Holy spirit. Exactly. The Holy exactly. Um, floating out there waiting to possess you. <laughs> oh yeah. Demonic Eternalized whiteness. That was yet another one of those things. When I first heard it, I was thinking it, it has to be a psyop of some kind. This is a, far right psyop when you're talking about internalized whiteness <laughs> yeah and i i guess it serves some purposes like 
you know, to explain why a why a particular black individual might not be a progressive. Yeah, well, it's nothing to do with him not liking. Yeah, it has nothing to do with you not liking the ideas. It's because you there's something wrong with you as a person. Or, <laughs> yeah, or or how do you explain why um, East and South Asians in the U.S. on average do better than white people? Or Nigerians? Um, that's the big one. Yeah. <laughs> like that, I think I think Nigerians yeah. of memory is. I think it's East Indians and Nigerians are like the top earners in the United. United States, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah, they they often do very well, and and so how do you explain this if the system is fundamentally racist? Well, then you got to have, you know, your your apologetics excuse of like, well, whatever. Asians have internalized whiteness even more than most average white people have, and so like they're they're now extra. White, yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I like how you put it as the inverse. I mean, you could even like not. Uh, like inverse it as sort of like like uh, the Wilsonian types would say, oh, the uh, you know blacks are not for far enough along the historical progression scale or whatever, uh, and that actually, if you phrase it the correct way, it is kind of the same. You could say, I'm trying to think of like the the most broad way I can put it, so it would apply to both, and I'm having trouble. But basically, you can talk to someone who is a they would call they would have a black square on their Instagram and they would uh, say Black Lives Matter like as a as a recitation and so forth. If you at, if you said it to them in the right way, if you said black people aren't far enough along the justice scale, we'll say they'll say absolutely they're they're not they're not on the same level as us white people. Like to me, I I see no there, there's obviously a difference in in specifics, but I don't really see a difference in kind. I see it as exactly the same. And, and honestly, I, I, you know, to, to wrap this up here, I I do think your episode on Wilson and race among the, because you're at 10 parts now, including this one, people should be listening to all of it, of course. But if you really want a, a, like a good, I think window into what we've been, well, obviously what we've been talking about, but uh, just like into what is so noxious about progressivism as we've been discussing it, listen to this episode that CJ has done because it really does show that it really shows like what this mentality is. I think it it is a good episode for people who might be skeptical of, you know, progressive skepticism. It's, it's a very, it's a, it's a very nice window into that. So yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. And um, I would, I would add to that, um, you know, if you want to listen to some of my Wilson episodes, less so to get like a bio- biographical sense of Wilson, which a lot of those episodes, obviously, that's kind of what they're doing. But if if you're really after like trying to dig deep and understand the original kind of roots of American progressivism as an ideology and as just sort of like a mindset and a worldview. Um, yeah, I would say that episode on uh, Wilson and race is definitely one. And then the other one that I would suggest, and I forget which is longer. These are two of my longest podcast episodes ever um, and definitely my two longest I've done on Wilson. But the other one is, and I, and I don't know the episode off the top of my head uh, number, but the Woodrow Wilson episode I did, um, I guess, a couple of years ago now on his academic writings which was another like four or five hour beast of an episode. And, you know, I, I went and dug through and read a huge uh, swath of his uh, writings of various types as an academic, as a professor and as president of Princeton. 
because it's a unique thing. We don't have this for any other American president. No other American president spent like three decades in academia. Um, and not only was he in academia, he was doing history and political science, which is obviously directly relevant to politics. And so you get this unique window into what he really believed. Uh, because presumably when Wilson was a tenured professor and he's expressing his views about, you know, political ideology and stuff, presumably he's not lying. Presumably he is accurately, whereas, you know, a speech he gives when he's campaigning for office, like with any politician, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Is he just trying to get people's votes and pander and whatever? Um, but, you know, if you're a tenured, respected professor of political science at Princeton, like probably what you're saying is your view about things is your view about things. And so we get this honest window into like his his real mindset on history and politics and stuff like that. So yeah, those two episodes. And I think there's a lot there that, you know, I don't think 99% of Americans today, well over 99% of Americans today have no idea what progressivism really is deep down um, when you scratched it down to its, you know, uh, roots and essentials and um, have no idea of the history of progressivism. And that includes both both uh, modern day progressives as well as, you know, a lot of modern day conservatives, they don't really understand what progressivism is. And, um, you know, they've got these like, like vague uh, stereotype heuristics of like, oh, progressives are just a bunch of namby-pamby <laughs> left-wing communists who hate America and whatever. It's like, that's not really it, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's more complicated and in some ways um, darker and more dangerous. Yeah. Right. And while it, it does have, uh, it has its place, we would say, on what we would now call the American left, I think what makes progressivism so dark as a philosophy, as an ideology, is it kind of transcends what we call the left-right divide. It is a mentality. It's a, it's a psychological, it's, it's, a, it's a, perhaps, as you say, it could be a manifestation of some deep-seated OCD. It, it's, it's something far deeper than just as you say, all these namby-pamby commies, because as we've talked about, there's a lot of aspects of progressivism that, like today, that more closely resemble stuff that you'd see in Nazi Germany or fascist Italy than you would see in Soviet Russia. Like, there's always going to be comparisons to everything, but I'm just making the point that what we're talking about is, at its core, a form of very dangerous and very normalized authoritarianism that I don't think, as you say, enough people know a lot about. So I really got to thank you again for coming on and talking to me for so long. I know you have uh, places to be, but uh, I think at this point, everybody who listens to this show knows where to find you, but why don't you just uh, uh, throw out the, um, the social medias and the podcast info and all that, and we can uh, let you get going here. Okay, sure. So um, dangerousheistorypodcast.com will take you to my homepage. And if you just want to listen to the podcast, um, you know, go to whatever podcatcher app you like to use and just search for Dangerous History Podcast and you'll find it. And um, yeah, I've got a YouTube channel. It only has a couple of videos on it so far, but it does exist. So you can subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. I get some video stuff from me every now and then. And um, yeah, like and follow on Facebook. Uh, follow me on uh Twitter and uh, all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Um, my most recent episode, by the way, is a, a crossover with our mutual friend, uh, Greg Zink, um, talking about democide. So I just put that out yesterday as we're recording this. I'm not sure when this will come out, but um, you know, th so that's, that's uh, an interesting conversation too, that I think uh, uh, listeners to your show will enjoy. Yeah. And I'm planning on listening to it in uh, while well, I'm on my run today. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. So anyway, thank you again for coming on. 
And uh, we will talk soon, I'm sure, because I'm sure something will raise our ire about something going on in the culture or within history in and of itself. So thank you again for coming on, man. Yep. My pleasure. History Impossible has been made possible by the kind and generous donations of amazing folks like Elias Perota, CJ, Bob Downing, Jason Griesmeyer, Greg Hunter, Joseph Hurst, Mike Malibin, S.O., Skip Pacheco, Molly Pan, P.J. Rader, Emily Schmidt, Steve Euler, F.U., and Greg Zink. If you want to be an awesome contributor like these awesome contributors, head over to History Impossible's Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash historyimpossible. Thank you very much as always, guys. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.